You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today we have Byron Carlock, an exceptional guest with more than 30 years as a leader of BWC, the CEO of CNL Lifestyle Properties and different REITs offices, keynote speaker, sharing Wall Street secrets. Please help me to welcome our guest today. How are you, Byron? Good morning. How are you? Thanks a lot for being with us today, and I appreciate you taking the time. Happy to be here. Is the audio okay? Yeah, it's perfect. Good. Thank you. Byron, your, your background is super impressive, as I mentioned, with 30 years of experience on real estate and REITs as a leader, but I would like to start with you as as the beginning on REITs offices. What was the beginning for you? Well, I I grew up in a family of uh, automobile dealers and I chose not to go into the family business. And after business school, I was attracted to a very special uh, real estate company known as Trammell Crow Company. You may have Mm -hmm. heard of it. And so I was was recruited uh, to go to Trammell Crow Company after um, getting my MBA and uh, really enjoyed the industry. As Mr. Crow used to say, some people think we're in the real estate business, but we're really in the community betterment business. Hmm. And I think the the thing that I love about the real estate industry is it allows us to change neighborhoods, change skylines, change the way people behave in the built environment uh, and make our, make our lives, frankly, more beautiful through uh, the way we choose to develop and move Uh, in our various environments. And so these uh, principles have allowed me to enjoy the industry both as a um, starting as a leasing agent, a development associate, and then rising through the ranks of uh, finance and capital markets uh, through the various positions. Uh, I was able to um, be an executive at Post Properties, which was very focused on um, urban living in a uh, reimagined live, work, walk environment. And then I uh, went to CNL, where I uh, was fortunate to be a leader in three of their REITs, and then came to PwC uh, 11 years ago to run the uh, real estate practice in the U.S. across our various lines of service. And so as at PwC, we're not developing anything, but we serve uh, 70% of the private equity real estate funds and 40% of the REITs on the S&P 500 and have a vantage point of offering audit, tax, and consulting uh, services to the major players in the industry as they work to remake our built environment. So what, what was the uh, reasoning for you to, to, um, to switch from focus as a leader on, on, on multifamily and all of the real estate spaces to an actual transition of managing and consulting all of the real estate REITs? the main player, as you mentioned? Well, I, I enjoy the vantage point. Uh, I, when I left CNL, I semi-retired and was doing some uh, consulting and sitting on four boards. And frankly, I missed being in the mainstream of activity. And a, um, I was approached by PwC to consider this different role <clears throat> to be an industry sector leader for the firm. Hmm. And um, I really, really like the culture of the firm and the people. It's been a terrific experience. I do have to retire next year. We have mandatory retirement at age 60 and I'm an old man now. So I have to 
consider uh, what's next uh, as I retire next next June. But it's been a great been a great run at PwC, and I'm very proud of our partners and our associates for the service we get to do to this industry. Because right now, there are some very uh, unique times for the industry as we, on one hand, are trying to rethink how we rebuild our built environment to satisfy changing demands. And on the other hand, doing it more responsibly than we have in the past, given the needs to be more sensitive to the environment and ESG principles. This is a really exciting time because this particular downturn we're in right now, Adam, is um, unique from other downturns in that the real estate industry has been fairly healthy and the supply demand characteristics are fairly much in balance for most product types, you could argue. Not so for retail and the demand patterns are changing for office, but multifamily, especially industrial as a secondary, uh, are in pretty good um, supply demand balance for the needs of society. And we have an opportunity to rethink how we're going to develop this next cycle, which I think is mostly going to be redevelopment of the built environment to higher levels of standard, higher levels of standards and um, better environmental sensibility. So how you see the long-term market fundamental with a new net immigration, for example, on right now, the Southeast was a winner on the last four or five, so for the last three years, the Southeast side was a winner uh, with the, pandem the pandemic behavior was, I think it's, it's reshaped the multifamily landscape because of the net immigration, leaving the, all of the North side, moving to the South side, especially the Southeast. So how you see the long-term fundamental is going to keep like this and it's going to change forever or potentially is going to have a reverse net immigration to the North state again, uh, like uh, Washington, uh, New York and uh, Ohio states and all of uh, this uh, Northern states. That's a great question. And starting with the end first, uh, the boomerang has already begun in earnest to most of those northeastern markets and rents have recovered to pre-pandemic levels in most of those markets um, and, and I think there are three things to look at number one is affordability number two is remote work and number three is climate and livability <clears throat> on the affordability some of our major metro markets in the northeast and northwest we're consuming 45 to 60% of a worker's income just to find a place to live. Yeah. When, the, when the pandemic hit, it was a convenient time for folks to say, I'm gonna work remotely in a place I can afford. And many people moved to those places and decided they liked it. Um, number two, the impact of COVID and remote work basically gave implied permission to live wherever you want to live and work however you want to work. As we are now experiencing this recession or pre-recession, um, folks are having to deal with whether or not they should return to the office to have FaceTime and be seen and remind their employers who they are. Um, we've had we've had over two years now of employee leverage. That's about to switch back to some employer leverage as employers have to decide with um, a changing economy and pending layoffs, how they are going to manage the remote versus in-person working. And that may drive migration back to the original offices. But we're also seeing employers say, 
remote working is actually um, a good, hybrid working is actually a good mix to allow employees to have flexibility while also allowing us to enjoy productivity for giving that flexible arrangement. So, so that piece, and then the final is the livability and enjoyability of some of the smile state environments. That not only are they affordable, uh, the climate is comfortable most of the year, although 105 degree heat across the smile states right now is not very comfortable, but it is um, generally a, a comfortable climate, affordable, and most of those states are very business friendly from a taxation perspective, lower income taxes, uh, no additional city taxes. And so that's really driven people to say, this isn't so bad. But if you, if you look at cultural and educational infrastructure in our established cities, it's very hard to see those easily replicated across all the markets of the smile markets, and especially the cultural infrastructure of cities like New York and London, which have evolved over 200 years. And as we see folks returning to the theater, returning to sporting events, returning to charity events, there's a real appeal to these major uh, metro markets. And you, you know, there's only there's only one New York, there's only one London, there's only one San Francisco. San Francisco's having some real issues um, socially right now with some major social problems as well as um, uh, issues associated with enjoyable work environment there, but it's still the tech hub. New York's still the finance hub. Uh, Washington's still the government hub. Those things don't change quickly. So those cities are not going away, but they are, they're certainly having to evolve. So potentially is going to have a, we can have some sort of a correction on the market, but still the Southeast in your opinion, I think is going to stay the winner on the market with more net immigration, with more rent increasement every day, every year, I think, because this was the, the main, I think, uh, engine for people to start go on the south and of course change of the multifamily space not only the multifamily this multifamily self-storage the offices especially for example in phoenix right now a lot of um, tech companies moving from i think san francisco to phoenix that's similar also on, on the south state so um this is i think in my opinion the uncertainty about if this market is going to keep growing and growing affecting the main markets like the metro markets but i think you you, you mentioned we're not gonna uh, have a major impact on the main main metro markets it's just as the other markets gonna have a better impact i think atlanta's got it all you know for many people people yeah. have laughed that atlanta's the manhattan of the south yeah. there are a couple there are a couple of new drivers in addition to the pandemic migration that have really allowed atlanta to to advance quickly coming out of this uh, pandemic activity. Number one is uh, the affordability that I mentioned earlier of yeah. major metro areas. It, it's very relatively affordable. Number two is the diverse workforce as we um, grapple with the issues associated with diversity and inclusion. Atlanta has one of the most educated diverse workforces for employers to draw upon from nearly 60 uh, institutions. And Georgia Tech is a tech driver there uh, as a very important contributor to the growing technology sector. And then finally, uh, Atlanta's beginning to bill itself as the Los Angeles of the East, 
with their growing studio and production businesses mm. for the media business to take off in Atlanta. I'm not sure people expected, and it's been a pleasant surprise to the growth of the economy there. Uh, Atlanta will have to grapple with some of the issues that big cities like Houston and Los Angeles have with traffic and internal um, movement in the city. And I think that Atlanta is now trying to focus on um, strengthening <clears throat> its rapid transit response internally, its living, working, and walking environment in Midtown, the consideration to build over the interstate to connect Midtown from Midtown business over to Georgia Tech will be a big addition like Dallas did with the Clyde Warren Park. Those things make a difference in the quality of life. And it's time to reconsider those investments in quality of life as Atlanta really uh, advances. But it's 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 a market to be reckoned with. It's a terrific market. 100%. 100%. Um, as you mentioned before, uh, Byron, you were the leader of two of uh, or three of the REIT offices before BWC. Uh, my my question was, uh, or trying to what I am trying to ask is, what is the from the REIT's offices perspective? What is the pros and cons to invest with institutional banks and family offices versus regular uh, accredited investors? Well, I think the REIT market was designed back in the '60s to allow. Um, average investors and the mass affluent <clears throat> to invest in a collection of properties and receive dividends rather than have to have the resources to buy a building and own it outright. Yeah. Uh, the, it's, it's, if you think about your private syndication business, um, that is an, that's an enclosed structure where you're the GP and you have LPs and, and you're, buying a building and then they are enjoying the returns from that building. REITs are obviously a collection of buildings with the same principles and there's not double tax taxation in the REIT structure because the dividends flow through for tax one time as opposed to being taxed at the corporate level first. So it's a very convenient way for um, Joe Investor to own a piece of a property or a pool of properties. As the REIT industry has matured, um, the sophistication of financial structures often um, limits the leverage. So REITs are generally low levered so for safety for the investors, but yet they are liquid. In the public REIT markets, you can um, sell your stock on any given day and you have liquidity. In the private REIT market, you have the ability to trust the GP as to when you uh, receive distributions and when you sell. And so there are benefits to both depending on the investor's appetite, but the REIT market has grown to become an institutional phenomena as part of an allocation wheel of equities, debt, alternatives, and real estate and private equity have been a big piece of that alternatives allocation on the non-listed side and on the listed side in the equities portfolio. So it depends on your goals as an investor as to what you want and what you require from a liquidity standpoint, but all of those structures are attractive. And frankly, everyone should have real estate in their personal portfolios. Uh, it's especially attractive in times of inflation that we're experiencing now because it's an asset that you can see, touch, and feel and, uh, and know that it's um, going to 
return you a nice dividend as long as it's occupied. So the, the risk then becomes performance of the property, but as long as it's performing, uh, it's a good inflation hedge. From your perspective as a, as a passive investor, if you're investing, what is more, uh, in, your, in your opinion, more appealing, the private or the public REITs? It depends on your investment horizon. If you have a long-term investment horizon, you know you should probably consider some of the, the private investments that give you a longer holding period. Hmm. Um, if you want liquidity, the public vehicles are hmm. something where you can park money, take advantage of dislocations in the market, hmm. buy you know buy low and sell high as you will, uh, because the REITs are uh, tied to the capital markets, tied to supply and demand for the stock on any given day. And so there is opportunity for purchasing a liquid security that may have upside in the short term as well as the long term. And then private investments as you choose your sponsor and choose your assets are great longer term investments for appreciation that you get to participate in uh, on a direct basis for that given property. Okay. I think um, this leads to you as an advantage player on the game. How do you see the current recession? And if you see an actual similar indication on, on, on the market lead to the same 2008 scenario? Like I don't, from- think, I don't think this is a 2008 scenario. That was a, um, a global meltdown of the financial markets hmm. associated with overfinancing of housing generally and the loss of... of um, trading volume in the secondary market for the housing sector. Hmm. Our housing sector is actually undersupplied. And since the global financial crisis, we have not developed enough housing stock and lending on that housing stock has been more prudent and regulated. And so this is not what this uh, downturn is about. This downturn is about coming out of the pandemic recovery and being faced with an energy shock, much like the 70s. Uh, an immediate shock to the consumer pocketbook because of increased costs associated with energy and now food, Mm. the Ukraine war. um, Ukraine is Europe's breadbasket, has rippled across the world with respect to access to dependable food supply. So we've seen inflation in mostly food and energy. And then that inflation spike has led to a reduction in... um, consumer activity and transaction activity that is now causing companies to rethink their growth rates. We were on a very nice post-pandemic recovery Mm. until the Ukraine war. And now that's added a shock. So the real question right now, Adam, is is this a a short-term correction as we address the impact of the Ukraine war and the energy uh, supply demand issues? Hmm. Or is this a longer term inflation cycle that we're going to have to deal with through fiscal and monetary policy? What do you think? It's too early to tell. I do think the Fed's decision to continue raising rates to try to slow it down is what we have to do. Inflation is an inflation is the worst tax on the poor. Inflation hmm. is detrimental to growth. Inflation hmm. is a is something we have tamed in our country since 1984 with great success and we we need to get it under control what was the, the main uh, 
like factors for the new inflation in, in your opinion is mainly on because of the as uh, a war or or because of the covid because the prices was going crazy on especially on the real estate it's a it's a supply and demand also or well we were already experiencing inflation in issues tied to the supply chain construction costs mm. we saw tremendous lumber spikes uh, that then calmed down we saw uh, spikes in steel and concrete developers really paid a price for higher costs uh, during and coming out of covid and then that all of a sudden got exacerbated by spikes in energy and food hmm. so uh, each one of those components of the economy is going to have to be addressed for their specific issues i think over time we're watching global trade um, try to return to a level of normalcy and supply chain issues persist, but they're not as bad as they were. And so hopefully that piece of it will um, begin to normalize. Uh, concrete and steel prices depend on production as well as developer supply and demand. The banks are tightening underwriting standards for new developments. So we'll likely see a bit of a slowdown in new development. Yeah. So that will digest, it'll give us some time to digest uh, what has been um, under development over the last few years. Although we are still undersupplied in housing and we need those costs to be um, justifiable for builders to build new housing stock. Industrial will probably naturally adapt to supply and demand dynamics. Retail is continuing its transformation that we've been seeing that even started pre-pandemic between the, the issues associated with e-commerce and bricks and mortar. And retail is actually um, um, doing fairly well as they adapt to these transformative uh, behavioral patterns of the consumer. And then office is the big question as it relates to um, in-person attendance at the office, yeah. remote working, uh, to sublease your space or keep it. Uh, I was speaking with a, uh, a large office landlord yesterday who said that Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday feels like a normal day. Monday and Friday are, are becoming flex and remote days. Hmm. But what happens in the office is requiring reconfiguration of the spaces to feel more like a living room than a cubicle. Hmm. And people are coming in for collaboration, mentoring, product discussions, strategic discussions, business planning, group meetings, um, employee onboarding, training, uh, it's pretty exciting to see how we're changing the way we use our office environment for interactive and personal um, development yeah. as opposed as opposed to heads down work. People are doing a very good job of getting a lot of their heads down work done uh, in the privacy of their own work environment, whether it's um, their dining room table or their home office. And productivity has shown that that's effective but I'm, I'm here to tell you, it's not either or, it's both and. We need office and, and we, need, we need remote flexibility. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I'm on vacation right now. I'm um, up at Martha's Vineyard and um, I'm on the phone probably seven to 10 hours a day, but it's a more <laughs> relaxed environment than being in the office. Yeah, 100%, 100%. I've been uh, in the off I've been on, in my house, I think on the last two and a half years so, so far. I went to the office, I think, six, seven times in the last two years. So, yeah, uh, I agree.
but you didn't give up your but you didn't give up your office no 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 still i still have my office um my next question would be about more again about the recession what asset class you think is gonna perform well especially that this current recession is it's it's just to control the inflation do you think that all of the commercial spaces is gonna perform equally on the current or the prospect like proposed recession on the next six to one year like uh, self-storages especially development side do you think an, an an impact on the development side well the 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 remember the bulk of our industry think of the industry like a bell curve the bulk of our industry is still the four major food groups of mm-hmm. office industrial retail and multifamily and each one of those categories has their own opportunities and challenges mm-hmm. uh, multifamily landlords are are in response to inflation and, re- and in response to demand are getting big rent increases right now industrial has been getting big increases because of of um supply chain issues and the need for more uh, storage and the growth of e-commerce um so some some large users in the industrial space have said they're going to slow their growth uh, that doesn't mean the industrial sector is going to slow down but it may slow its growth trajectory it may not be mm-hmm. but the supply demand characteristics in multifamily and industrial um, are still, at least right now, very positive. Office will continue its transformation with a migration toward the higher quality, better buildings in the A category. And I think we'll start seeing some B and C category buildings be repurposed or demolished. Um, and then retail is marching forward with its transformation, which had frankly begun before the pandemic and before this recession, to be more um um appropriate for multi-channel consumer behavior um buy online return in person uh shop in person pick up your online and exchange Uh, this multi-channel omni-channel retail environment is is moving toward um a, a higher level of maturity in the eyes of the consumer as they give us everything we are seeking in a more convenient way and and so I think retail is actually, I think, going to be interesting to watch over the next few years. But I think the biggest opportunity in those four major food groups is redevelopment of existing space as opposed to so much ground up development. It's it's uh, often less expensive. It's not as hard on the environment. The real estate industry, uh, with its use of concrete and steel and and uh, changing the uh, greenscape of the of of a development has been a um, a large user of carbon and, and, or excuse me, a large creator of carbon. <clears throat> and so I think the ESG movement is going to cause us to be more responsible in redeveloping some of our built environment as opposed to continuing ground up. And then the attractiveness of the alternatives, you mentioned self-storage. I would add data centers, life science centers, um, medical office-related activity, um, outpatient med facilities, the healthcare industry is driving a changed utilization pattern for real estate in their industry that is taking healthcare out to the consumer in a more effective way, and that requires real estate. Uh, they've been the biggest users of unleased retail space, and they've been big absorbers. As we look at moving uh, from a um, hospital-dependent culture to a wellness culture, 
So I think that's that's something to watch. And then data centers, life science centers um, are, are big growth areas, but it's a small percentage of the built environment. So we don't want to overbuild those, but they are darlings right now, as is self-storage, as the boomers realize their children and grandchildren don't want their stuff. And so they're um, having to store it while they, while they decide what they're going to do. Yeah, yeah. I, I see a lot of development on the south side also. Again, the same, same winner about the self-storage uh, space, especially the development side, besides the actual, uh, all of the multifamily, especially class B and C products is about, uh, I think 1960s and 70s, a lot of products on a B and C side of uh, multifamily on the south side is still um, really all the products. And I see there's an actual growth on, on, on the de development side, or there's an actual need for a development side on, on this product? There is, and there's also a great opportunity for redevelopment and upgrading some of those. Yeah. You know, they have that the garden style apartments were lovely products that were appropriate for that time that make uh, very nice renovated products. And if you mix and match the large floor plans of some of those garden apartments and the easy walk up and maybe mix in some mid rise, you can create a very nice rental community. And rental communities are an important part of our rental fabric. And it's also justifying this build to rent uh, residential single family business. That's also a very big growth area because our population is more transient today. If you are in one city for one job now, you may not be there five years from now. So a rental lifestyle uh, is very attractive to a, a large percentage of the population. Uh, my concern there is it. It negates access to, quote, the American dream of building equity in a single home. Um, and so we have to, we don't want to ever find ourselves guilty of, of cutting off access for home ownership, but credit and underwriting standards have been um, tightened in many, um, by many institutions such that it's harder for folks to buy that first home. And they're certainly more expensive as we look at the price of most major cities. And so I think um, that's also driven people to rent. And it's it depends on what, what it is they wanna rent and where they wanna rent as to whether or not they want a uh, old style garden apartment with uh, eight, eight units to a, a block, or if they want a sexier um, high rise in the urban core, mm. or if they want a mid rise, uh, or a pastoral setting in a built-to-rent community. 100%. Uh, I think the, the last question will be, within the 30s, who, what, what was that uh, book grabbed your eyes uh, describing the private rates, uh, private capital, private equity for, firms? What was a, a book really grabbed your attention on your career? Oh, that's a great question. I, I think... And it's an old one. My favorite book, and I still, actually there are two. Um, I have every one of my associates read um, the biography of Trammell Crow by William Ewald. Um, he, was, he was a great, a great businessman and thinker for um, literally 103 offices around the world. Uh, and then an old book uh, called A Patterned Language is an, is an, dissection of why European cities are timeless okay. and why 
why the buildings in in Europe seem to last hundreds of years, and we build in the U.S. to a 40-year horizon in many in many situations. And so I think a pattern language really looks at creating a built environment that lasts, is sustainable, is beautiful. And I, I want to emphasize beautiful. I think we need to be more conscious of, of what we build, how we build it, and how it's going to stand the test of time uh, as it contributes to the vibrancy of a community. We all seem to enjoy in our hearts the beauty of walking on a cobblestone street or sitting on the front porch of a town that looks like Mayberry or Seaside. And I think um, that's worth noting. And a pattern language does a good job of, of talking about that. And when I was uh, working with developers, I would always ask them to read the book, A Patterned Language, and they would always come back with great ideas from what they learned from that book. I will do. Uh, my funny question here is, I was not funny, is actual serious question is, how you describe your superpower after 30 years on the, on the business? How would I describe what? Your superpower. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, my, my Chinese name uh, is Kong Kai, which means dancing tiger. Which okay. means I can have fun, but also be fierce. And so maybe okay. that's my superpower. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, again, thank you a lot for being with us today. And I appreciate you taking the time. But before we conclude, how the people can reach BWC and uh, be, uh, or uh, contact BWC or reach your, your, uh, your associate? So www.pwc.com. And also watch for this fall at the fall ULI meeting, we'll be launching our Emerging Trends 2023 magazine, which is um, very widely read in the industry, evaluating some of the trends that we just discussed. That's perfect. Again, thank you a lot for, your, for being with us today. And I appreciate you uh, be our special guest today. And I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much.